Today's Old Testament reading is from Psalm chapter 40, verses 7 through 10. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the, book, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning comes from Romans, the first chapter, verses 8 through 17. Hear the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve, serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, thank you now for this, your word. May it till the ground of our hearts and cause to grow in us what you intend. May we be so transformed by this truth, O God, that um, it would make us into the people you want us to be. Let this message meet us in the greatest area of need. May we be convicted and convinced by its power and truth and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Well, the early days of Bill Gates and Microsoft has become the stuff of legend. In 1975, Bill Gates and a friend from high school, Paul Allen founded the company. The name was a blend of two words, microcomputer and software. And in the beginning, their software was really only popular with computer hobbyists, sort of the tech geeks and nerds of the day, maybe the rest of us would call them. But Bill and Paul had a vision of a computer on every desk in every home running Microsoft software. For many people, Gates and his team were just nerds and geeks with some pipe dream and their initial enterprise was ignored by investors and relegated to irrelevance. Early computer technology was rejected for a whole host of reasons, but as Microsoft grew, their reputation grew mostly among the computer and technology community. 
When Windows was first released in 1985, it didn't immediately catch fire, but among the tech community, it later grew and became the giant that it is today. Today, half a billion people are using Windows' latest version, with another half billion using older versions. While the world slept, Bill Gates built not just a company, but a movement that revolutionized the way that we live. Long before the world noticed, Microsoft had become famous among its own computer hobbyists and fans. Well, the Roman church was sort of like that. They only numbered a few hundred people in the city of Rome, which had about one million people. But among the fledgling churches of the Mediterranean world, the Romans and their faith, the faith of the Christians in Rome, was becoming famous. And so Paul, in verses 8 and 10, writes and talks about the Romans' faith and widespread fame. In verse 8, this is from the New Living Translation, Paul says, Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. Now we know that when Paul and people in the first century talked about the world, they meant the Mediterranean world. They weren't thinking about Peru and California. They were thinking about the world they knew, which was the Mediterranean world, and it was vast. But why, we might ask, was the faith of the Christians in Rome becoming so famous? Well, for one, they were in the city of Rome where the Caesar lives, the seat of the empire's power. It was the lion's den, so to speak, the the belly of the beast, if you will. And Kent Hughes writes about this, and he says, Rome was the city of the world. Her law was the foundation for all that followed. Her art was borrowed but appreciated. Her military system was the wonder of the world, yet how pitiless she was. Amid all the ruins of her cities, we find none of a hospital, none of an orphan school in an age that made many orphans. The pious aspirations and efforts of individuals never seemed to have touched the conscience of the people. Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor, end quote. So how dangerous you can think for it to be for a growing movement in Rome to make claims that were dangerous and political, claims that challenged the lethal might of Rome with all of its weapons and power, a message that said that even the emperor must bow to this new lord of the Christians. Dangerous message. Very political. Some people say Christianity is not political. Not in the partisan sense is Christianity political, but it is political absolutely in the sense that it says that there is one real ruler of every ruler. The Bible calls it king of kings and lord of lords. For us, that's like religious jargon, sort of Christianese, but for the first century, the lord was the emperor. 
The king was the emperor, or whatever reigning power over whatever grand empire there was. And so to call Jesus Lord of Lords was saying Jesus was the Lord of Caesar. He was Caesar's Caesar. To say Jesus was the Lord or the king was to say that whatever king was in power, that Jesus was his king. And that was a dangerous message. And so to be in the epicenter of that secular pagan power and to be proclaiming the gospel was no small thing. What's amazing is the church in Rome seems to have sprung up sort of organically. Paul was not its founder. Paul is in awe from what's happening among the Roman Christians. And last week we talked a little bit about the tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The Jews, Christian or not, were all kicked out of Rome in 49 AD by the Emperor Claudius. And when he died five years later, they came back. And when they came back, the Jewish Christians found that the Roman church had, had been sort of taken over by Gentile Christians, and they thought differently about God in the same way that people of different ethnicities who believe in Jesus may think differently about God. So Christians in Burma or Vietnam or China or Ecuador may think a little bit differently about God than you and I here in Western America, right, the West. And so Paul is speaking into that context, that tension, and he's in awe, though, about what's happening in the church in Rome. It's this organic, grassroots movement of faith that has bubbled up from the ground, and he says, God knows how often I pray for you. I, I, I would think that Paul, being the church planner he is, is sort of standing back in, like, beaming with pride. Oh, you don't know how much I'm praying for you. I'm so excited about this movement because Paul had labored all throughout the Mediterranean world to build up the churches. And here's this church that he didn't even plant and it is thriving. And he says, day and night, I bring you and your needs in prayer to God. And one of the reasons why he prays so hard is because you know movements are most vulnerable in the earliest stages. Movements are vulnerable in the early stages, and it was not a foregone conclusion that the Christian church would survive in the first century. Now, we have theological reflection. We look back on verses like Matthew 18, you know, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail, but all of those pieces of the puzzle were not in place yet two decades after the life of Christ. And so it was not entirely clear that this movement of Jesus' followers would not be extinguished and so they're praying fervently like we should today we should be praying fervently for churches not just here but churches all over the world that do suffer persecution and experience the possible risks of being extinguished by governments and movements or other religions that are hostile hostile to the gospel God is at work clearly among the Romans the Christians in Rome but it's dangerous there's dangers you know, those stories of Christians being fed to the lions in the Colosseum are all too true. That happened. But the Christians were not without defense. They had a weapon that was different than the weapons of Rome, and it was prayer. Now, I know that in our modern age of skepticism, even Christians like us functionally are like, functionally are like rationalists. You know, we know that prayer is supposed to work but we hardly employ it to do any real heavy lifting. If we're depressed, we take meds. 
if our car breaks down, we take it to the shop. If we have financial problems, we consult an advisor. But there are some things that all the money and resources in the world can't fix except prayer. One commentator writes, though the powers of this world arm themselves, the powers of the world to come are being armed through prayer by the weapons of the Spirit. So the Christian church was not without defense, but they had a different kind of defense because the weapons of their warfare were not carnal or fleshly or physical, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They had spiritual and supernatural power, and we ostensibly have spiritual and supernatural power to tear down strongholds if we'll use it, if we'll employ those weapons through prayer. There's really no other way to explain the spread of Jesus' movement in those halcyon days except that the early church was armed with its own weapons. They were armed with the weapons of prayer. And Paul, again and again and again in all of his writings, emphasized that he is praying what he believes to be accomplished through prayer and his confidence that God will answer his prayers. So we see the widespread faith of the Roman Christians, but we also see that Paul is motivated by this mutual encouragement. He's writing to them because he wants to come to them and encourage them. He says, I want to impart some gift to you, and I'm also hoping that you can encourage me. He says, and this is my paraphrase, I've been praying to come see you, to strengthen and encourage you in some way, and be encouraged by you. You may not realize it, but I've tried to visit many times, but I've been prevented. Now, what was preventing Paul? We don't know. Possibly imprisonment or preoccupation with helping other churches. Maybe he was just so busy that he couldn't make the trip. But he was hindered. Something stopped him from coming to Rome several times, maybe a half a dozen times. Was it by God that he was hindered? Was it Satan? We don't know. But what is clear is that Paul is not the master of his own time. And this is instructive for us because Paul is subject to the sovereignty of God. If God lets him go to Rome, he'll go. If God says that, you know, he'll go into a city or maybe he'll stay where he's at, he has to obey the voice of God. And that voice is not always audible. I would say it probably for us is never audible, right? The will of God is always discerned in hindsight, right? It's only till we get on the other side of a river that we recognize its current, right, and recognize what we came from. And so discerning the will of God was tough, but he is not the master of his own time. He is subject to God's sovereign will. His plans and his schedule were subject to God's approval. And there's a passage about this in the book of James. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Paul wasn't sovereign over his own affairs, and neither are we. And the sooner that we accept the reality that we aren't fully in control of our lives, the better off we'll be. In God's pleasure, he allows events and disruptions to mind us, remind us of this reality. 
Sometimes we're reminded forcibly, shockingly, that we are not the masters of our own universe, that we live in God's world, and God is in control. And that's not always easy to accept. But what we should accept is that we need him, and God allows us to experience those frustrations to remind us how much we need him, how much we rely on him. Now, here and in 1 Corinthians 1 emerges one of the main ideas of Christian theology, okay? A little shift from what we've been talking about now. We're making a shift. The gospel is the power of God, and this is what Paul is building up to, that the gospel is the power of God, and he writes verses 15 through 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, what is he talking about? I want to posit this morning that the way that most of us, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, have interpreted this passage is probably wrong. We interpret it as simply, we, we, do, we, we actually, when we approach this passage, we make it all current modern application and it is completely devoid of context for us. The ministry that Paul has been given is to the non-Jewish world. And in the non-Jewish world, there are two categories, Greeks and barbarians. Ancient Greek, Attic Greek, was a sort of like beautiful lyrical language that flowed off the tongue and sounded wonderful. And everything else, including Latin, as far as the Greeks were concerned, was foolishness. It was gibberish. In fact, the word barbarian is, sort of, is a word that came from how, to the Greeks, everyone else sounded when they talked. If you didn't speak Greek, this is how you sounded. Bar, 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 bar. And so people who spoke that way were barbarians. Okay? And why, why, what is the point Paul is making? He's making the point that I've been called to preach the gospel to the wise and the foolish, and I know that what I'm saying sounds foolish. I know that this message that I'm preaching, the message of the cross, sounds foolish to people. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know it's foolishness to people. Now let me go a little deeper and give you some more background on this famous but often misunderstood statement. Fleming Rutledge, in her magisterial book on the crucifixion, says, why should Paul be ashamed of the gospel? Why would it be necessary to issue this disclaimer? A person opening the Bible in search of spiritual guidance, inspiration, or instruction might well be puzzled to find so blunt a reference to being ashamed. One might search religious literature for a long time and never find any such language as this. But Paul assumes that the Christians in Rome will know what he's talking about when he says, not ashamed. The answer lies in the fact that the crucifixion as a means of execution would normally cause shame for anyone associated with the victim. It was the most horrific and dignity-destroying means of death, the most degrading and offensive idea one could imagine that a person you worship was condemned to be crucified as a criminal, to die naked on a cross. It was a shameful scandal. Again, we've Christianized much of this language, and for us, it's, it, it has 
an exalted meaning, right? Uh, even the symbol of the cross is sort of a decoration. But if you can imagine, it would be the equivalent of one of us today wearing a necklace with an electric chair. It was grotesque and macabre. I'm not saying anyone's wrong for wearing a necklace with a cross pendant. That's not the point. But the point is, can you imagine how insane, ridiculous it would be that early followers of Jesus not just referred to his death, but this, his redemption of all of us, his work of atonement, his power and resurrection, we would, all, we would refer to it as the cross. Like, we know about JFK's assassination, but we don't say the assassination. Or, you know, Mary Antoinette's death, we don't say, like, the, the guillotining. It's such a foreign, bizarre, weird, shameful thing that the early Christians, of all the thousands and thousands of crucifixions, that one of them was this world-transforming event, this unrepeatable execution that changes the world and all of the focus and energy sort of is drawn into this horrific way to die. Just to drive the point home with one final statement, it would be like in all of the thousands of lynchings in the South, one of those lynchings had world-changing significance because on one of those trees hung the Son of God, and the symbol of that significance would be a tree and a noose. Right? I mean, imagine that. Paul knows how crazy his message sounds. It comes across so offensive. And so he talks about how foolish he knows that the message of the gospel seems it seems foolish, more foolish than the barbar language of the non-Greeks and the way they spoke. He knows that the message and the preaching of the cross comes across as completely crazy. But he says, I'm not ashamed of it. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why are we so ashamed of the gospel? Why are you ashamed of the gospel? In Greek, the word ashamed means a fear of experiencing a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. Are we ashamed of the gospel because we are afraid of losing status with neighbors or coworkers or friends or family or people in the community? Are we ashamed of the gospel because we want to be liked? And well-respected. We don't want people thinking we're crazy fanatics. Is that why we're ashamed of the gospel? Or are we ashamed of the gospel because maybe we don't really believe the gospel because we're incredibly evangelistic about everything else we're passionate about, right? Like, I've been doing intermittent fasting lately, and I can't stop talking about it, right? Because I'm into it, and that's just who I am. I'm evangelistic about everything, right? Um... And a lot of you are that way. Some of us have strong political opinions and you don't care if someone thinks you're nuts because you're so convinced that some particular view of market economics or politics is right that 
You're willing to ostracize and alienate people, but with the gospel, we're not that way. What is it we have to ask ourselves? What makes us ashamed of the gospel? Now, some of you are thinking, well, I always tell people I'm a Christian. That is not what Paul is talking about. The statement, I'm a Christian, is not what Paul is talking about when he says the gospel. He's talking about the euangelion, the evangel, the proclamation of the good news, the actual message of the gospel that Jesus died on a cross and salvation is to be found in no one else but Jesus and his work of sacrificial death and atonement and resurrection. Listen to what Jesus said. Whoever is ashamed of me, Luke 9, 26, and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's sobering. That's a sobering statement. That if we're ashamed of the Son of Man, he'll be ashamed of us before the Father and the angels. Lord, help me not to be ashamed of the gospel. Help me to boldly proclaim with wisdom and discernment the message of the gospel. Help me to see the lost as, as for their true condition, as truly lost. Help me to have a burden for souls and help me proclaim the gospel. I once heard someone say that for a lot of people, depending on what they think the gospel is, the gospel's like wearing a parachute on a commercial airplane. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. I think Ray Comfort was the first person to say this. That the gospel is like, you know, a massive parachute on your back on a commercial flight. Someone, if someone tells you it'll make your flight more enjoyable, it'll only be a little while before you take it off. Because not only will it actually make your seat uncomfortable leaning forward between two other people, but after just a few minutes, everyone else on the plane is going to be looking back at you, laughing you to scorn. And it'll only be a moment before you shed that burden. But, but... If someone told you, this plane is going down, and that parachute on your back is the only salvation you'll have, you'll gladly, willingly bear the insults and the shame and the embarrassment. In fact, you'd, you'd lean forward in your seat the whole time with this sort of, you know, almost smug, you know, resolve on your face, because it doesn't matter who laughs at you, who thinks you're nuts? It would not matter. You would grip that thing tightly because you know all of your salvation. Your very life itself is wrapped up in this thing on your back. And in the same way, the gospel is sort of a burden on your back, but it is the power of God unto salvation is what Paul is saying. It is the power of God. I'm, he says, I'm not, afraid, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. This message of the gospel of Jesus, salvation is wrapped up in the death of Jesus on a cross, and it's the power of God for everyone who believes in it, no matter how foolish it seems 
or how shameful it appears or how embarrassed initially it might be to someone who rejects it. Because in it, in the gospel that is, the righteousness of God, meaning God's saving and vindicating intervention for us, is revealed. The righteousness and justice of God is revealed. His saving act and intervention for us is revealed through Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross. And those who will be righteous are made righteous by believing in it. That's what it means. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. One, one, one definition of that is from first to last, it's all of faith. Another, comment, another scholar says it means that everyone who believes from faith to faith to faith to faith, right? Faith, 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 everyone who has faith, it reveals the righteousness of God and we receive the righteousness of God. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's from faith, from start to finish, that we receive the righteousness of God. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's actually something to rejoice in. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you now for the sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus. It was shameful, and it was a scandal in the first century for Paul and the early Christians to declare that their Lord and Master was a condemned criminal who died a horrific, shameful death. And yet, that message was gladly preached and embraced and shared because of their understanding of just what it meant. It meant their salvation, their rescue from sin and death and destruction. Father, Give us an experience like that again. Make, it, make the gospel powerful again, fresh again in our hearts and minds. Put us, like Paul, in an awesome sense of wonder at what the gospel is for us lost and fallen sinners and help us to cling to it with all of our heart and might and willingly and gladly proclaim it, bearing whatever shame it may bring, for the sake of your son Jesus, who died for us, we pray in his name. Amen.